If you'd like to turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11, there's just one verse I want to look at tonight. And uh, what I'm going to speak about tonight, I say right at the beginning, we cannot do it. So I'm going to spend however long I spend, four hours or so. Um, <laughs> you think I'm joking. Uh, asking you, it wouldn't be the first time, no. Asking you to do something you and I cannot do. It's not possible humanly for this to be done. And yet it's something that Scripture encourages us to do. So I want to speak about kindling the fire of prayer uh, amongst us tonight. Kindling the fire of prayer. Now, the reason I say we're not able to do this is that the Bible makes it very clear uh, we do not know how to pray. I mean, that's, that's a, a great start. Uh, <laughs> thanks, Lord, very much. You ask us to pray, and then you tell us we can't. We don't know how to do it. So we are cast completely on God for prayer uh, right before we've ever tried. And I'm convinced that one of the reasons why many Christians find prayer so difficult is that they're trying to do it. Because you can't do it. <laughs> it's not possible. And you kind of grit your teeth and think, I'm really going to try, really going to try. It just, now there's nothing you and I can do to, to pray the way that the Bible wants us to. I mean, if you think we're bad, uh, just think of Jesus in Gethsemane saying to his disciples, look, can you go over there and pray, you know, pray with me? Because this is the biggest, biggest day of my life. I'm facing the biggest challenge of my life. I need some people to stand with me in prayer. They fall asleep. I mean, gee, this, this isn't like, you know, you might have a church prayer meeting. I mean, we have a church, but I've never seen anybody asleep in it yet. I mean, I've seen some that I'm not sure, but, but then, you know, they've moved a little bit, and I thought, no, 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 they're just concentrating. Um, but, you know, it's not the sort of thing, even in one of our prayer meetings, you do, is it? You just don't fall asleep. I mean, just don't come if you're feeling tired. But Jesus, Jesus Christ is standing there asking his disciples. I mean, if Jesus walked into your prayer meeting and said, can you just pray with me for an hour? I don't think we'd have a problem. Do you? I mean, really, we wouldn't, would we? But they fell asleep. So they're kind of exhibit A in this, you know, you can't do it even if you're sat next to Jesus. There's something about the human <laughs> spirit that when you say, dear Lord, it's almost like an anesthetic. Ooh. It's just kind of, just every, you can have a conversation with your friend before the prayer meeting starts and they say, well, let's pray. Ooh. It's just like, there's just something inherently inoculating in us as human beings that makes prayer <laughs> completely impossible. But I'm so encouraged by that that because... Because Paul wrote in, uh, in Romans, we do not know how to pray, but, praise God for the but, in the buts in the Bible, pray, <laughs> praise God for the buts in the Bible, <laughs> with a one T, all right? <laughs> praise God that you don't know how to pray, but your Father or the Holy Spirit will help you. He'll help you learn how to pray. He'll help you do it. You can't do it, but he'll help you. He'll pray with you with cries and groans that can't be uttered, things that humanly are not capable of doing. There's a, there's a 
the thing about prayer is it's co-working with God. It's, it's one of those things where we are actually, we're, we're, we're standing alongside Jesus, as it were, agreeing with him about things that matter to him. We mustn't lose the sight of the fact that Jesus, and I hope I can explain all this um, well, and it's mystery, isn't it? Jesus is fully God and fully man. Now, let me just, just fully God, let's just leave that for a moment and accept that. But because he's fully man, he's just like me and you. He's a second Adam. The only difference between him and us is he didn't sin. That's the only difference, right? The only difference. So even he in a prayer meeting, as a man, his flesh would go, hmm. Right? Because otherwise, if he's not like that, then he's not a second Adam. Right? If, he, if, he doesn't, if he's not the same as us, he can't represent us. Right? So you've got to let his humanity, you've got to let him be a human being. Right? So we, we've got to let him get down amongst us and just kind of, yeah, I know what it's like, guys. We've, we've, got to, we've got to let that happen. So when we then think about, Lord, let your kingdom come, we, we, we imagine and, and long for God to do incredible things. And we sometimes might think to ourselves, and I do certainly, why doesn't the kingdom come more kind of forcefully and bypass us so that God just does stuff and we go, way God, which sometimes he does, of course. But actually, most of the time, and the reason why as yet Jesus is in heaven and has not come yet to completely draw this age to a close, is that he must reign until all, he's put all his enemies under his feet. But he's reigning as the man who's also God. So his kingdom has to advance, as it were, doing full um, honor to his full nature. So he is praying now for his kingdom to come. Right, Because he's taken our humanity into heaven. We've got a man in heaven today. There wasn't one there before, but there is now. Somewhere in this universe, there is a risen, ascended human being who is crying and praying with loud tears before the throne of his father for this earth to fully see his kingdom come. And that is how the kingdom grows, through this glorified man who is also fully God, who because he's fully God gets all his prayers answered. That's the difference. And he's got the power to actually bring about what he's praying for. I told it would mess you with your head. But that's, that's, those are the paradoxes we're having. So we've got we've to understand when we talk about praying, we're not talking about something Jesus is looking on at and thinking, yes, that's very good. You carry on. I'm reigning. No, we're, we're saying, Lord, we want to be praying with you. We want to co-work with God about things that matter to him. Jesus can be very lonely in prayer meetings. Why? Because sometimes there's only him and a few others. Jesus loves it when we co-work with him. And you might think, yeah, yeah, but I find it really hard. Well, I told you you couldn't do it, right? So that's okay, right? We can't do this. So you think, well, I, I want to do it. Yeah, I know, but we can't. But we'll see what we do about that as we go through. 
So that's just a little bit of a, I wanted to say that at the, at the beginning, just to make us all feel completely comfortable, there is no exam at the end, all right? So you think, hands up those who pray for five hours a week. Yeah, there's no, you know, hands up who can't remember when they last prayed. There's, there's no exam, right? There's really, because all of us fail. We, we all can't do this. This is something that requires Holy Spirit presence to do. It's a bit like trying to lead somebody to Christ. We can't do it. We can say words. We can show love. We can pray. But only the Holy Spirit can bring a person to life. Only God can do that. That's the domain of God alone to call life out of darkness. So, this one verse, I want to just read. 2 Corinthians 1.11 says, You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Right? You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Now, the Apostle Paul, when he started his second letter to Corinthians, he's, he doesn't have a problem telling people when he's having a bad day, Paul. He's, he's right out there with it. He says, so before he gets into any doctrine, any correction, any encouragement, ask, he doesn't even ask, how are you? Right? There's <laughs> none of that. He just, says, uh, he just says in verse 8, I don't want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength. We despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. How are you? you know, it's, he's, he's at his absolute wit's end. He's writing desperate. He's, he's desperate. And I was talking to um, I, was, I was talking to Terry Virgo some time ago. We were talking about prayer. And uh, he said he once did a, a study through the book of Acts about prayer. And he found this, that most prayer, if not all prayer, in the church took place in the context of either a drama or a crisis. There's something about the drama of life and the drama of church in the early church that provoked prayer. So they either pray, prayed before there was going to be some dramatic step they were going to take, or they prayed after having taken the dramatic step and suddenly all hell broke loose. But drama and crisis and, and um, uh, kind of battle are the, are the context in which prayer takes place in the early church. And 90% of what the scripture writes about, about prayer, is spoken about in a corporate context. 90%. We tend to put a lot of emphasis, particularly in the West, on having your time with God, learning to have a, a, a quiet time, whatever we call it quiet, I don't know, because it should be noisy, but you know what I mean, having, having a, a, a time with God or you know, learning how to pray. And all of that is absolutely right, because Jesus said, go into your closet, shut the door, pray to your Father unseen. So there is something about praying on our own. But most scripture teaching on prayer is assuming it's corporate. There's something about God's people 
praying together in the midst of drama and crisis. That is the atmosphere that prayer is supposed to be birthed and sustained in. So they were praying when Jesus was taken back to heaven. They, they, they were in the upper room praying. Why? Because they didn't know what to do next. Drama, crisis, Lord, help us. When they were told to stop preaching, then Acts chapter 4, they started praying again. Sovereign Lord, there's a, there's a drama, there's a crisis, and, and, and prayer is their natural response. And Paul here is in the midst of crisis. And he says to those he's writing to, you must help us by prayer. It's not that he's thinking, well, that's the only thing that you could possibly do. You can't think of anything else. He's saying, no. I want your prayers because I know that when you pray together, many will give thanks because of the blessing granted. He's anticipating that by asking them to pray, things will be given that might not otherwise be given had they not prayed. That's a big thing. Prayer isn't just rearranging the furniture, it's creating the furniture. There's things that are not going to happen if we don't pray, that will, will be granted if we do. He's saying, that's why he's saying, you must pray. You must help us by your prayers so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted through the prayers of many. He's, he's stirred about it. He's, he's imploring them that there's a drama going on in his apostolic mission that he knows that prayer um, is the only thing that's going to make the difference. And I just want to make this point. We do live in a dramatic time at the moment. I think we can get a little inoculated to it a bit because you switch on the news and it's just one crisis after another and you kind of can sit there eating your tea, uh, you know, global destruction, yeah, yeah, piles of salt. You know, it's, just, it's just kind of... We don't sometimes realize what we're, we are living the most volatile period of human history. I mean, that, that's, you don't have to be a genius to work that. It's, it's volatile. It's, it's, it's global movements and shakings. And, and the thing is, all of that, that shouldn't make us feel, oh, you're depressing me on a Saturday night. No. Jesus said, these are just the beginnings of birth pains. Right, this is all part of the end game. The end game is that one day the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And even when the dark gets dark, the light will get lighter. I believe that Scripture promises that there is a glorious end time church that will emerge in the earth that will just fill the whole earth. And though there will be great evil, there will also be a great victorious church. And it's that great victorious church that Jesus is coming back for. There are prophecies in the Old Testament that have never, ever had anything fulfilled that come anywhere close to fulfilling them. Right? They're still the things that Isaiah and Micah saw in the last days. The mountain of the Lord will be established as chief among the mountains. That's not happened yet. And if it's not happened yet, it's still got to happen. So we are living towards something where the church is going to get more and more glorious. And we have to have a global perspective. Whatever it's, it's happening down your street, in this town, in this nation, we might think, oh, it's like that everywhere. It is not. There are huge movements of God going on everywhere in the earth. Huge movements. It's, and the devil would keep us thinking, oh, it's all very much in decline. Don't you believe it? Don't you believe it for a minute? 
There are purposes in this nation and in the West where God is shaking and allowing shaking so that the church will get its teeth back. That's what's happening. Because only when crisis comes do we actually respond to the crisis. And maybe, I don't even know if I believe this, but maybe the best thing that could happen to us is a bit more persecution. Well, that didn't get an amen, did it? <laughs> just, just maybe, because what draws out of God's people their best response is living in the reality of the warfare rather than just thinking it's all just a, just a nice bubble. Paul has put his life out in serving God. He's gone to the places God's asked him to do. And do you know what happened when he got there? Absolute terrible stuff. Just, I mean, we can have meetings where we say, right, there's someone here called to this nation, called to that nation. Oh, great, I've got a call to the nations. You wait till you get there. You wait till you get there. We're not playing games. Even if your calling is here and you think, right, kingdom breaker, I'm, I'm willing, I'm willing for God to really take me up through the gears, share my faith, pray for the sick, get involved in the community, get involved in the, the muck, the, the, the muck of humanity and cleaning it all up and giving myself, putting myself out for the sake of the kingdom. You might, you might really be up for that. I tell you, that's not a holiday. It's, it take everything you've got. I mean, in my own little way, right? Ever since I said to the Lord, whatever you ask me to do, whatever, and soon I said, whenever you ask us to do, Lord, we'll do. It's not, it's not fun sometimes. And yet it's greatly fulfilling. You're stretched beyond all capacity. You've got all kinds of stuff going on, opposition from the devil, opposition from people. This happens, that happens, no money here. People suddenly dying there, someone getting healed there. How does that work? It just does your head in. You plant a church and you think, yeah, God told us to plant the church. Two years later, it collapses. Yeah, what's all that about? Another one, planted it, great. Boom, off it goes. This stuff, it, this is going to hurt. If we really want to see kingdom break out, this will cost. It will cost big time. And that's what Paul is reflecting. He's saying, I don't want you to be ignorant, brothers. He's saying, don't imagine that serving God is going to be a piece of cake. It's, it's not. It's going to. We, we had affliction so that we were so utterly burdened. Just think this. Burdened beyond our strength, we despaired of life. This is the great apostle Paul who said, all things work together for the good of those that love God. He's saying here, take me now. I, this is the man who said one verse one day and is saying this verse this day. I don't know which one came first. It's just hitting the wall. Have you ever hit the wall in serving God? Have you? Come on, have anyone, everyone, anyone had the teeth knocked out, Let's to use the analogy? And you've been going for it and the, you know, your teeth have been punched out by the devil. How, has that, that happened? You think, I tried, I really went for it and boom. Welcome to mission. And you know what? It won't ever get any easier. No wonder Paul said, you must help me by prayer. You've, <laughs> you, you, you must help me by prayer. 
And so, I mean, some time ago, I came to the conclusion when I looked at all the, you know, just we're doing as a family of churches, and I thought, I can't do this. What am I doing? I can't do this. And I thought to myself, well, well, I just kind of had a conversation with the Lord about it. Well, it wasn't so much a conversation. It was more of a a question. Then he he proceeded to tell me the answer. Um, And I didn't really like to argue with him. And I kind of thought, well, what do you do? And you can apply it in your own context. What What do you do if you really believe God's called you to do something, but you can't do it? I mean, that's, that's a bit of a challenge, isn't it, really? Well, why tell me to do something I can't do? But that's actually normal, right? If, I, if you and I are not living beyond our ability, then we're not, we're not doing what God's asked us to do fully. If, as has been said, if our destiny is not humanly impossible, then it's not of God. Because if it's humanly possible for us to create our own destiny, then we don't need God. There's something about dependency on God is just utterly vital. And so I, I said, Lord, what, what do you want me to do? And I'm just talking about our family of churches in relational mission. And I felt the Lord say to me, I, I want you to rekindle corporate prayer. I want you to rekindle corporate prayer. Put the teeth back in, to use the analogy. And as I was praying about that, I, I, just, I just kind of got this, I don't know, awareness from this verse where it says, the prayers of many, the prayers of many. You must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted through the prayers of many. Now, there's sometimes when one man or one woman can pray a prayer and that one person changes the course of what's going on. We find that in Scripture. There are many, many other occasions when things are only granted when many people are asking for them, where the corporateness and the multitude of the prayers being asked, all people saying the same thing over a period of time, that is the ordained way for God to, get the, to, to bring about the blessing he wants to. And I believe there is, there is a there is a, 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 a jewel in the crown of the church that needs restoring to do with corporate prayer, to do with learning how to pray together. See, when we pray together, we're saying, I can't do this without you. Not to, not to God, but to each other. We're saying, I need you to help me. When we link arms in prayer, we're saying, I can't serve God on my own. I need you to help me. It's a very tender aspect of fellowship. It's, it's, it's one of the most intimate ways in fellowship in the church can be expressed when we're saying, I will help you by praying for you. I mean, have you ever been prayed for by someone and it's made you feel, you know, just a million times better, isn't it? I mean, you just say, I just, I, nothing may have changed immediately in that moment, but somehow someone's come alongside and I feel fortified, strengthened by that person just putting their hand on my shoulder and agreeing with me together about something that we said amen on. Now, if you multiply that, there are things that we can touch that can't be touched just on our own. And I felt there was um, two things particularly for us as a family of churches that I felt were really important. I felt just kept seeing this word enough, enough. It just kept 
going as it was past my you know, vision in my mind's eye. I said, enough, enough. And I felt the Lord say that corporate prayer um, needs to have two components. Well, any prayer, but particularly corporate prayer. Firstly, it needs to use that word to mean this. Lord, you are enough. You are enough. So it's a focus like we have been uh, singing, where we're exalting him. We believe you're a God who can heal the broken, um, uh, make the blind see, you know, raise the dead. We believe, we believe, we believe. It's, Lord, you are enough. You are enough. For whatever we're asking, you're enough. There's something about God's nature and his character that when we get hold of it, our cry is, you are enough. We know that we're coming to someone who is not unable to do what we're asking. But the other aspect of the word enough is, Lord, enough of this. Enough of this. We've had enough of this. Lord, would you who are enough make enough of this? Enough of this. There's, there's two ways you can use that word. So we're actually starting, uh, just to show you how we're outworking that, as a family of churches next year in 2015, we're going to have three half nights of prayer. Uh, one in March and then two other times of the year. I can't remember where they are. Uh, dates all, all come out. And all across our family of churches, we're inviting churches to gather in regional centers to start for the first one, about eight or ten centers, so that we can just start small and then multiply it. And I thought, wouldn't it be great if on a, fr- it's a Friday night, right, a half night of prayer, eight till 12, the most inconvenient, tired time you can imagine, anybody come out, not only to come out to a conference, but to come out to a prayer meeting. I thought, if we're going to do it, let's really, let's really make it difficult for God. So half night of prayer, Friday night, 8 till 12. There's going to be like a whole menu of stuff as to how we do that, which will get, get um, explained. Because I think prayer can be really exciting. Uh, we need just to learn how to, how to make it more accessible. But it can be really exciting. And what I thought was this. Wouldn't it be amazing if we could, just as our, in our little family of churches, if we could get 1,000 people for the first one, all at the same time, in different locations, all praying for the same things. I thought, come on. I thought, come on. This, this, and who knows, that could then grow to more thousands, and we could then perhaps link arms with other streams, churches, denominations. We just, just the momentum starts. And before you know where you are, I kind of felt God drop, I'll be honest with you, I've kind of felt God drop the number 10,000 in my heart. And I thought, I believe, Lord, we could get 10,000 people praying three times a year, half nights of prayer for personal issues, local issues, national issues, international issues, church planting, mission, whatever we're involved. I, I I believe God spoke to me. I, I do. We've never done it before. It's completely crazy. The Bible says we can't do it. I mean, what more could go wrong? But then what encouraged me after I picked myself up on the floor was I discovered that Jonathan Edwards had already done that some years ago. I honestly didn't know this. There's this little book which is sadly out of print, and that says something. You can get it on Kindle. But it's called A Call to United Extraordinary Prayer. An Humble Attempt, the subtitle. And what Jonathan Edwards did in uh, 1784, he was in New England in America, 
And he wrote to the churches that were connected with him, and he said, I think we should have seasons of extraordinary prayer. And by that, he meant times when everyone's gathered together, same place, same date, praying for the same things, but in lots of different locations. Do you know, they covenanted to do that as they started for seven years before they'd started. Seven years before they'd started. And one of the reasons he, he covenanted for seven years um, was, was this. I'll just read this little bit to you. I can just find it. There we go. He said, uh, <clears throat> if we should continue some years and nothing remarkable in providence should appear, as though God had heard and answered, we should act very unbecoming believers if we should therefore begin to be disheartened and grow dull and slack in seeking of God so great a mercy. It's very apparent from the word of God that he is often wont to try the faith and patience of his people when crying to him for some great and important mercy by withholding the mercy sought for a season. And not only so, but at first to cause an increase of dark appearances. And yet he without fail at last succeeds those who continue instant in prayer with all perseverance and will not let him go except he blesses. Now, what he's saying there in modern parlance is this. You may start praying and you think, you look around and you think, well, I didn't work. That's because God's held it back. Why? Because he's saying, do you really want your teeth or don't you? Because if you do, you're going to have to try harder than that. He wants us to get serious about it. If you imagine the times in your life when something, some real drama or crisis unfolds, some circumstance breaks out over your life and my life, we don't have a problem praying then, do we? We don't. Why? Because it matters. It matters. And we say, God, I'm not letting you go till you bless me. And what God is doing is he's not being harsh with us. He's trying to put the muscle onto us. Do you know, the way muscle is built is by it tearing what's already there. You, you can't grow muscles like me uh, unless, unless you put the ones you've got under sufficient strain so that a tearing takes place and something new grows. And God is not being hard with us. He's training us. He's saying, right, come on, church. Let's really get some muscle in this prayer thing. Don't just, D.A. Carson says, we're like a little boy who runs to the doorbell, rings it, and then runs away. That's what our prayer meetings are like. We go to the prayer meeting, ding dong. Nope, no one in, run off. No, God said, no, come on, c keep pressing the bell. Even Jesus said, he gave the example of the, the importunate widow going to the judge's house and knocking on the door at three in the morning, and she was heard. Why? Because of her lovely uh, manner? What, because of the, the, the reasonableness of her request? No, she was heard because she was such a flipping nuisance. The judge thought, I have to get up, otherwise this woman will not stop knocking on my door all night. Now, God is not like that in terms of being reluctant to give. But Jesus was teaching the principle that importunate praying, persistent praying is the kind of muscle he wants his church to have. 
Because if we believe he's a God who can do everything we've been seeing, then quite frankly, if he hasn't done what we've asked, he has a problem. Because if he doesn't mean it, he shouldn't say it. I mean, is that unfair? Does he not tell us promises in his word that he wants us to believe? So the greatest honor we can pay to the Lord is to say, Lord, excuse me, but you said this and I can't see it. You have a problem. Amen. <laughs> now, I, I don't think that's irreverent. I think God loves it. Because he's saying, come on, tell me some more. Tell me some more I haven't done. Because he wants us to really believe him, so much so that we say, look, there's two of us here. I ain't moving. I know you've got eternity, and one day I'll just drop down dead. But until that happens, I ain't moving. Until you do what you've promised. Imagine the prayers of many people who believe God like that. I, I think God wants that. I think that's maturity. I think that's Christian maturity to say, God, if you don't mean it, don't say it. Jacob said, I won't let you go unless you bless me. Why? Because he knew he was a God who'd made a promise to him. So he said, well, I, where do I go? I can't go anywhere else. So you've, got to, you've got to bless me. You have to bless me. See, importunate is a strange word. I looked it up. Because uh, we're not, you know, it's not something you slip in. Try slipping into the conversation at work on Monday. See what happens. You get me an importunate cup of tea. It doesn't work, really. Because it doesn't mean that. What it means is this. <laughs> what it means is this. Right, importunate means persistent, insistent, tenacious, persevering, dogged, unremitting, unrelenting, tireless, indefatigable, urgent or persistent in solicitation, sometimes annoyingly so. And Jesus is saying, that's what I want you to be. I want you to be annoyingly persistent. I give you permission to be annoyingly persistent. Troublesome, annoying. It can be used in the sentence to speak of the importunate demands from the children for attention. Any of you have either had young children or seen young children in your family who want something, right? Je Jesus is saying, that is the attitude I want in a prayer meeting. Tugging at the sleeve, dad, 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 no, stop it, dad, 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 dad. Sit down, I'll do it in a minute. Dad, dad, dad. That is what Jesus is encouraging. That's, that's teeth. That's teeth. That's prayer teeth. Are you with me? I mean, this is... See, Jesus said, ask of me and I will give. I mean, he's laid himself wide open there. <laughs> it's a blank check. Ask of me anything in my name, I will give it to you. 
See, part of the relationship is Jesus inviting us to wrestle these things through with him. And I believe in large measure the church has lost the art, the habit, whatever it is, of asking God for things. We've learned how to receive from God in terms of Holy Spirit, and that's wonderful because that was, you know, that was in need of correction. But learning to receive the Holy Spirit's infilling is supposed to produce something. And it is supposed to produce mission so that we go out and share the gospel. But it's also, it's also intended to produce a tenacity and a courage that makes us ask him for things, a boldness. When the Holy Spirit fell on the early church, it said they were emboldened in every respect in their faith. They were emboldened in prayer. They were emboldened in witness. They, there was a boldness that came on people when the Holy Spirit touched them, changed them. They took note these men had been with Jesus. Something changed in them. And importunate praying is one of those things that I think God wants us to learn. Andrew Murray says, God longs to give, but holds the blessing back. Why? Because he just wants us to learn more about asking and not giving up. We need to understand that we're wrestling things through. Now, the thing about prayer is this. Um, prayer is like, Prayer is like fire, and that's why I think it's really corporate prayer is the best way of praying. Why? Because if you're feeling like a coal that's gone out of the fire, all the other coals that perhaps are a little bit hotter than you can just get chucked back in, and suddenly it catches. See, a powerful prayer meeting where people, where there's fervor and zeal, it catches. It's like fire. It leaps onto people. And I've often found that when I'm praying for something, and you feel like, you know, I'm just praying in cold blood. What I found is if you press on, you pray yourself into prayer. And you actually think, do you know what? I care about this more than I thought I did. If you just keep going, you just push through the flesh, push through the... And what you find is another energy kicks in, and it's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit helps us. He comes to us as we, as we take that run up to the diving board and then ugh, go like he said, no, go, go, I'll, I'll help you. And he, an energy kicks in that is not of human origin. And we can find ourselves praying in the spirit in a way that we just never thought we would. It, it is supposed to be a supernatural activity. Now, there are times when it feels like cold blood, but you know what? I've found God even answers those prayers. Right? Because it's not about the quality of your vocabulary or even how you're feeling in yourself. It's about who it is you're praying to. It's the fact that if he said he's who he is, then whether your sentences feel very stumbling, bumbling, whether you don't feel whether it's a wet Wednesday in February and you feel like whatever. Just ask. I've seen God do things through my most pathetic prayers. I thought you are kidding. But it's not about how I do it. It's about who I'm asking, isn't it? It's about who I'm asking. That's what really matters. That's what touches his heart. If I believe he is who he says he is. Just to read Andrew Murray again, just um, on this matter. 
It says, the one thing by which man can honor and enjoy his God is faith. Intercession is part of faith's training school. There our friendship with men and, uh, and with God is tested. There it is seen whether my friendship with the needy is so real that I will take time and sacrifice my rest, will even go at midnight and not cease until I have obtained for them what I need. There it is seen whether my friendship with God is so clear that I can depend on him not to turn me away and therefore pray on until he gives. Oh, what a deep heavenly mystery this is of persevering prayer. The God who has promised, who longs, whose fixed purpose is to give the blessing, holds it back. It is to him a matter of such deep importance that his friends on earth should know and fully trust their rich friend in heaven, that he trains them in the school of answer delayed to find out how their per perseverance really does prevail and, what, and with what mighty power, sorry, and what the mighty power is they can wield in heaven if they do but set themselves to it. There is a faith that sees the promise and embraces it and yet does not receive it. He's saying that, you know, we give up far too easily. Paul then says, you must help us by prayer. You know, he's, he's desperate. Carson again says, Paul counted on the prayers of the churches to gain for him what, what might not otherwise be given. Now, just to try and help sort of earth this in a in a in a, a real situation, I'll just tell you a little bit of a story. So I've told you sort of Bible stuff now. Let's tell you a little bit of a story, just to show how this does out out work, and then then perhaps we'll um, we'll pray. Um, James Fraser. How many of you have heard of James Fraser? Right. If you can ever get hold of a book called Mountain Rain, it's by his daughter Eileen Crossman. I, for me, it's in the top five Christian books of all time. Uh, I just easily, for me, I think it's just incredible. Uh, put it on your Christmas list uh, or your birthday list, whatever. And uh, James Fraser was a man who went from England to China to work with the Lisu tribe, who were an unreached people group. And uh, his first eight years in China were very hard. He bore very little fruit for all his hard labor. But he turned those fruitless years to good by learning through his struggles that the task of reaching the Lisu people were completely beyond him. He, <laughs> he learned that in eight years. He taught himself this is impossible. And he realized it could only be achieved by the power of God. And as a result, he realized that if he saw any kind of breakthrough, then all the glory would go to God alone. And he wrote home to the leader of his old Bible study group in England, and he confessed this. It seems a big responsibility to be the only preacher of the gospel within a radius of 150 miles. I feel my weakness very much, yet the Lord seems to delight in making his power perfect in weakness. Now, convinced that God's power is made perfect in weakness, Fraser began to spend more and more time alone with God in prayer. He became convinced that the only hope for the Lisu tribe was for him to develop an intimate friendship with God on their behalf. And at the end of his first eight unfruitful years, James Fraser concluded the breakthrough could only come through prayer. How many of us have been doing what we're doing for a lot more than eight years? May I make the same conclusion 
what we're asking for can only come about through prayer. Transformation of this town and this area, our nation, the nations we're involved in, can only come about through prayer. It's that important. It's that important. And he wrote in his diary on the 5th of February, 1916, he said, the outlook here in uh, Tansa, where he was, at present seems less hopeful than at any time since I first set foot in the place. I'm now setting my face like a flint. If the work seems to fail, then pray. If services fall flat, pray more. If months slip by with little or no result, then pray still more and get others to help you. The more he prayed, the more he became convinced that God would give him what he prayed for and that God would enable him to pray the prayer of faith for the Lisu people. He said, I knew the time had come for the prayer of faith. I've never repeated the request and never will. Right? So he, he got to a moment when he asked something and he knew it was done. There was no need to ask it again. The asking, the taking, the receiving occupied but a few moments. The past can never be undone, never need be redone. It's a solemn thing to enter into a faith covenant with God. I arose with a deep restful conviction that I already had received the answer. A few months after this pivotal night he spent in prayer, a massive spiritual breakthrough suddenly occurred among the Lisu. Scores of families converted to Christ in each village as he visited and started to spread the gospel proactively themselves. This mass turning to Christ provoked heavy persecution. Some Christian girls were kidnapped and threatened into marrying animist men. But by 1918, just two years after the move of God began in the mountains of Lisu land, a stunning 60,000 people in the province had been baptized, not just from the Lisu, but also from many other Christian, uh, sorry, Chinese people groups. He found that resistance to the devil and his demons in prayer was an essential aspect of his breakthrough among the Lisu. He wrote in his journal, seemed distinctly led to fight against principalities and powers for Middle Village. Sounds like Lord of the Rings, doesn't it? He told his friends back in England. However much he resisted the devil and his demons in prayer, James Fraser spent even more time in prayer to God the Father that he would give the Lisu people to his son. He believed that Jesus had brought the Lisu with his blood and he asked the Father for their salvation. Fraser was merely adding his own prayers to this request in Jesus' name. Fraser recruited a small band of prayer support back in England who were willing to pray intensely with him for his work amongst the Lisu. And he sent them long letters describing each village, mapping it out, describing key individuals in, in incredible detail so that they later told him that they felt they knew the Lisu villages better than they knew the streets of their own town. He told them that, I believe it will only be known on the last day how much has been accomplished in missionary work by the prayers of earnest believers at home. Solid, lasting missionary work is done on our knees. What I covet more than anything else is earnest, believing prayer. One more thing. Fraser became convinced that only prayer could result uh, in mass salvation amongst the Lisa. And he wrote this, we cannot fret people into the kingdom of heaven. And I never now try to persuade Lisu people to become Christians, I find they are quite unstable and unsatisfactory unless they turn with all their heart. He became convinced that only prayer could result in the genuine discipleship of Lisu who are converted. When heavy snowfall prevented him from visiting his converts in the mountain villages for eight months of the year, note this, 
he decided to spend the time he would have spent traveling back and forth praying for them instead. The results of his experiment were astounding. The converts in the mountain villages grew much faster than the converts in the lowlands, despite the fact he was with them all year round. There's something in this, I would suggest. There's something in this. So what about you? So that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted. He asked the Corinthian church to pray for his apostolic agenda. It was an agenda they were in together. It was their apostolic family agenda for for the mission that he was involved in. And I want to suggest that as we go forward, whether it's in Lowestoft, whether it's in Norfolk, Suffolk, Kent, Essex, Holland, Germany, Canada, far side of the world, wherever God takes us, wherever you end up working. I, I want to suggest that there's something I believe God is birthing amongst us, restoring perhaps even to us about corporate prayer, that all he wants us to do is firstly turn up, be there, say, I don't know if I can do this, but I'm here, and then say, dear Holy Spirit, help. Help me to pray in the Spirit. Help me to do what I can't do humanly. I think that's an adventure worth taking. But whether it's in our corporate things that come up, our half nights of prayer, or whether it's you on your own at home, and you kind of, you love the Lord, but your prayer life, if I asked you how how many people here put your hand up if your prayer life is the strongest thing about your Christian life, don't answer that. I don't think many would feel too comfortable or confident to say, oh yeah, no question. That should not be and need not be. I don't, I'm very dissatisfied with my prayer life, but I love praying. I love it. I love praying. I once, I mean, I heard, I, I love most things Martin Lloyd-Jones says, but he, I read once thing he, one thing he said, where he says, everything in the Christian life is easier than prayer. And uh, when I read that, I thought, oh, right, that does explain a lot. But I actually, with all due respect to him, I don't agree. I don't agree. Because praying is really just talking to my father about things that matter to me and matter to him. What's difficult about that? It's the flesh that just gets in the way. But my spirit wants to communicate with my father. Doesn't, doesn't yours? My, my heart says, Father, I, <laughs> Jesus said, when you pray, say, our father. You know, there's, a, there's an intimacy about our relationship with God. It's, we, he's not, the thing I want to leave with us tonight is not that he's like some sort of schoolmaster. Um, I'll just quickly read you this, all right, because I, I want to just make sure that we We have this intimacy in our prayer. The Lord would remind us, this is from Andrew Murray's With Christ in the School of Prayer. And then again, another superb book on prayer. The Lord would remind us that the prayer of a child owes its influence entirely to the relation in which he stands to the parent. 
the prayer can exert only the influence only that when a child is really living in that relationship, in the home, in the love, in the service of the Father. The power of the promise, ask and it shall be given you, lies in the loving relationship between us as children and the Father in heaven. When we live and walk in that relationship, the prayer of faith and its answer will be the natural result. And so the lesson we have today in the school of prayer is this. Live as a child of God. Then you will be able to pray as a child. And as a child, you will most assuredly be heard. And what is true child life? Well, the answer can be found in any home. The child that by preferences forsakes the father's house, that finds no pleasure in the presence and love and obedience of the father and still thinks to ask and obtain what he will, will surely be disappointed. On the contrary, he who, whom the intercourse and will, end, uh, will end and the honor and love of the father are the joy of his life will find that it's the father's joy to grant his request. As scripture says, as many as are led by the spirit of God, they are the children of God. We're coming to our father in heaven. We must take the best earthly father we know we must think of the tenderness and love with which he regards the requests of his child, the love, the joy with which he grants every reasonable desire. We must then, as we think in adoring worship of the infinite love and fatherliness of God, consider with how much, how much more tenderness and joy he sees us come to him and gives us what we ask aright. There's something about knowing the fatherhood of God that makes us good prayers. You see, the Trinity is involved in prayer. We're working with Jesus. We're co-working with him. The Holy Spirit's helping us to pray because we can't do it on our own. And the Father is the one who we're coming to. And he's such a good father that anything we reasonably ask, and sometimes even things we unreasonably ask, he will give why? simply because he loves you because you're his child. That's it. To have the whole trinity, this whole godhood of godness of God, helping us pray, I think we can make some progress, don't you? God is, God is giving all of himself to help us learn how to do what we can't do. So let's stand together. And I just want to pray that God will help us. All, all I want us to do is not so much to say, right, I'm going to try much harder. Please don't think like that. If, you've, if, you've thought, if you think like that at the end of this message, I've failed. Right? We can't do it. This is about saying, Lord, take who we are. Take who we are. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Would you, Holy Spirit, help us to pray? Lord Jesus, we want to carry your burdens and feel your heart and the things that matter to you, we want them to matter to us. And Father, we want to come to you as your dear children, knowing that just as us who are parents would give good things to our children, how much more, how much more do you love us and carefully so wonderfully. You love just hearing our voice. You love it when we speak to you. You just love everything we ever say to you. you. You're just so thrilled whenever we speak to you. It just makes your heart leap. Lord, what an incredible thing. 
to think that's the God we're coming to. Lord, help us. Teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. I pray, restore the jewel of corporate prayer. Lord, in the life of your church, not just here, but everywhere where, Lord, this, the sound of my voice reaches, Lord, I pray that, Lord, I pray for church after church to, to have an explosion of prayer, Lord, that we don't create. We're just, we're just positioning ourselves for you to do something that, that we can't do. Lord, we're asking you for that. We're asking you, Holy Spirit, even now, come upon each one of us who's thirsty for what you've got for us. Just come on us right now, I pray in Jesus' name.